coronavirus pandemic has now claimed 5 million lives. Tonight, another COVID record setter. More than a million new infections reported nationwide in just 24 hours. A virus can have more powerful consequences than any terrorist action. And that's true. And now the problem is that the world is testing against COVID-19. If you would stop the test, you would see nothing anymore. This, the, the epidemic would, would be gone. So I, I concluded back then in that article that this could was completely inconsistent with a viral respiratory pandemic. It could not be that. And that it was all due to what the administrations were doing in those jurisdictions. So what the hospitals were doing and how they were treating the elderly and the reaction to the pandemic and how aggressively they were doing what they decided was a good thing, which was counter to the existing science at the time. And they basically killed many, many uh, frail and elderly people. Hello, everyone. The opening segment you've just heard contained three very standard clips on COVID-19, the kind of thing that's been on any news show over the past two years. They expressed the position that COVID is highly dangerous that there have been vast numbers of infections, and these infections have claimed millions of lives. This certainly seems consistent with the excess mortality figures we've seen since the virus was announced. In contrast to this, the last two clips state there has been no pandemic. COVID-19 is not especially dangerous, and is certainly not responsible for the deaths of millions. What is this? The lunatic fringe? dangerous and irresponsible nonsense, statements uttered under the cover of tinfoil hats? Well, maybe, but the people uttering them aren't really fringe types. The first is Dr. Klaus Kohnlein, a medical specialist of internal diseases and co-author of the book Virus Mania. The second is Dr. Denis Rancourt, who holds a PhD in physics and has published extensive statistical analysis on excess mortality figures. So are there any good reasons to take these seemingly outlandish claims seriously? Two things struck me right at the start of the pandemic period. The first was that the most solid figure to look at would be all-cause excess mortality. The total number of deaths above what might be expected. If, say, it was reported that a lot of people were dying of COVID, but all of a sudden no one was dying of the flu, and the numbers exactly balance out, well then you could raise an eyebrow and question whether there really is a unique virus out there, or is the medical establishment just rebranding something. If the total death rate shoots up, however, well then you know there's something serious going on. And whilst correlation doesn't prove causation, it certainly seems like a reasonable assertion that this increase is due to the newly detected virus. Indeed, at the time, the dramatic spike in the death rate convinced me of exactly that. Over a three-month period, England and Wales experienced nearly 60,000 excess deaths, with a third of them coming in just two weeks. What, other than a virus, could have possibly caused that? The other thing that was immediately obvious to me is that human society is a complex system that will adapt to changes in all sorts of unpredictable ways. As an analogy, imagine if you were studying the game of football and you had the goalkeepers removed from a match to specifically understand their role. What would be the consequence of this? 
the managers would simply substitute off strikers and bring on new goalies. If you block them from doing this, two or three defenders would go and stand on the goal line. The point is, you wouldn't get to see a normal game of football minus the goalkeepers. The wider system would adapt around the changes you made. This is of course true of healthcare and wider human society too. As soon as a global pandemic is announced, not even when its effects are noticed, just when it's suspected of being on its way, human systems don't stand still. They move to adapt. These adaptations can themselves have profound effects on things like the mortality rate. A recent study published in The Lancet, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, no less, calculates that during 2020 and 2021, COVID killed just under 6 million people. The total global excess mortality for the period, however, was just over 18 million. 12 million excess deaths not attributed to COVID. To reassure you I'm not making this up, let's listen to YouTube's favourite doctor, John Campbell. So as of the end of 2021, there was basically 6 million people reported to have died of COVID. Uh, their estimates for the excess mortality is three times that, it's 18.2 million. Now this doesn't tell us what they died of. Does this mean that deaths from COVID were greatly underreported? Yeah, to some, well, certainly we know that's true in many parts of the world. Or does it tell us that other people died uh, as results of the lockdown measures or as other measures that were taken to fight the pandemic? Or is it that there was more uh, violence or is it that there was more uh, alcohol and drug abuse? Or is it that, uh, and this is certainly true again, that, that many people were not able or to, were too frightened to access health care? So it doesn't tell us that. It just tells us these, these numbers. As Dr. Campbell points out, a percentage of the 12 million could well be undocumented COVID deaths. That door, however, swings both ways. It could equally be the case that deaths attributed to COVID were caused by other factors. Is there a reason to think this is the case? Well, let's look at some of the changes that occur when a novel virus appears that can themselves affect the death rate. The first thing medical organisations might want to do is seek out effective treatments. This involves running trials on drugs which, above a certain dose, can themselves be dangerous or even deadly. And indeed this was the case. I'm going to play a long clip now of Dr Klaus Koline, who you heard in the opening segment, being interviewed by Dr Sam Bailey. Dr Koline makes an extraordinary claim that the spike in the death rate during the second quarter of 2020 corresponds with multiple trials that employ toxic doses of the drug hydroxychloroquine. There are some graphs mentioned in this segment which I'll talk through in a moment. Now I'd like to ask you about the claims of excess mortality from COVID-19 coronavirus. The US, the UK, Brazil, Italy, Spain, France, Belgium and the Netherlands, for example, have been affected by significant excess mortalities. In the USA and Europe alone, an additional 200,000 people died in the first half of 2020 compared to the same period the year before. Doesn't this show that COVID-19 is a potentially deadly virus? Yeah, well, after the first quartal of this year, which ended in March, I, I may show you this curve, which is from Euromomo. Can you yeah, see yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, there you see the yearly 
excess mortality of the of the normal flu. Yes. In the years 1917, and then you see 2020, and then you see how the, the normal flu just wanted to disappear in the end of March, and all of a sudden there is this sharp increase in the middle of April. Yes. That's a time when the usual flu is, is gone. And um, on accident, uh, a friend of mine showed me some data from the WHO studies. And I saw how they, when they started the study, they started it in the end of March, starting April. And I looked at the data and I saw that they started it with hydroxychloroquine in a very high dose, 2.4 gram on the first day, followed with 800 milligrams for 10 days. So people had in their blood after 10 days, they had almost 10 gram of hydroxychloroquine. What would be a normal dose for hydroxychloroquine for people that don't know? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine is an old treatment. We, we know it for years and you use it for prophylaxis for malaria. It's quite untoxic. I used it when I went to Singapore or the Sri Lanka many years ago. And um, we also have experience in uh, rheumatoid patients. They also take it for years in a dosage 400 milligrams, 200 until 400 milligrams. That's relative untoxic, so you can take it for years. But this treatment, this, this hydroxychloroquine has a very short therapeutic range. That means you can overdose it very easily. Mm. And that, that, was hap that happened in April. And this sharp increase is the, the only explanation is this overdose dosage of hydroxychloroquine because um, we heard it also in, in Brazil and in England. People were dying like flies in April. I heard it from a friend of mine who, is, who takes care of the intensive station here in Kiel. They were uh, telephoning with uh, colleagues in London and they, they, they got the message, well, they are dying here, it's terrible. And they, they were really anxious here in Kiel as well that th this wave will come to us also, but nothing happened because we in German, we didn't use this high dosage. With regards to potential COVID-19 treatments, there have been several large studies this year, in particular the, solidar the Solidarity Discovery, Recovery and Remat trials. What is your analysis of these trials? In, the, in England and London, they used the, the, the recovery study, was a special English uh, program. Um, they used this high dosage of uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine. And of course, Doctors noticed it after a while, and then the, the studies were stopped. The, the studies were all stopped in all over the world. In Brazil, they stopped the study because of very bad heart complications. That's what I have to say. This hydroxychloroquine, if you use it in this high dosage, it does heart arrhythmias, and it does lethal heart arrhythmias. That's why. Uh, it is used in, in um, to if you want to kill yourself. Yes, yeah, yeah for <laughs> euthanasia. Yeah, also. You and the question is, how could it happen? 
how could it happen that they take this high dosage? And the, the, the leader of this study, uh, Professor Laundry, was asked, how, how could it come that you take this high dosage? And he said, well, COVID-19 is a new disease and we have to start with something. So um, that was his answer. And um, another colleague asked him, well, but uh, okay, it's a reasonable answer, but why this high dosage? Then he said, well, he looked how they had treated amoebiasis in the early days. And it was a similar, they took a similar amount of pills. And then the other doctor said, well, I never treated amoebiasis with hydroxychloroquine. I, we used hydroxyquinoline. I think he confused it. This man is a dangerous man. Yeah. And that's the only explanation I have for this high dosage regime. It is, uh, it is immediately toxic and you get these lethal heart arrhythmias. It was, it was uh, Boris Johnson, the, the minister of the, the, of he was, the UK. He was, in that therapeutic, he, he was in that therapeutic window and all of a sudden he has to go to intensive care because probably because his arrhythmias <laughs> were dangerous. But he, well, he survived. Not, not everybody dies from it, but uh, very susceptible, even very old people have the bigger chance of dying from it. But since these studies are stopped, there is no over, no, there's no excess mortality in no country anymore. What is your analysis of those trials? If you can summarize, I guess. Well, these trials, the Solidarity Discovery and Remap study, the remap was done in Belgium, and that is a very uh, interesting point because Belgium is the direct neighbor to Germany, and we have uh, very, we have, I can show you this, we have this sharp increase in Belgium. Mm. In the middle one, yeah, yeah. In the, in the middle of April. That's quite big. <laughs> and we don't have it in Germany, so this virus obviously stops at the border. <laughs> Very convenient. Uh, the killer stops at the border. There's no other explanation. That this, it's, the, it's the treatment which caused this damage. Now that interview was recorded in October of 2020. And obviously there were substantial spikes in excess mortality after that point. Which, if Dr. Colleen's assertion is correct, would require a different explanation. Looking at the period he's referring to, however... We see things like a massive spike in Spain's death rate, whilst at the same time, Portugal experienced next to nothing. The same is true of Belgium and France experiencing substantial excess deaths, whilst there was only a small excess in Germany. Dr. Coline asserts, and I'll expand on this point in a minute, that it is impossible for national borders to contain a virus. What we are seeing, therefore, must be the effects of medical trials in those countries where the death rate spiked. Dr. Coleman takes the extreme position, and by extreme, I don't mean to imply that he's wrong, that all the deaths during that period can be attributed to drugs trials. The same point about toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine is made by doctors who contend the pandemic is also very real, and hydroxychloroquine, at the correct dose, is a vital drug in treating it. I'll read a passage from Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book, the real Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates, and the World Health Organization 
financed a cadre of research mercenaries to concoct a series of nearly 20 studies, all employing fraudulent protocols deliberately designed to discredit hydroxychloroquine as unsafe. Instead of using the standard treatment dose of 400mg a day, the 17 World Health Organization studies administered a borderline lethal daily dose starting with 2,400mg on day 1 and using 800mg a day thereafter. In a cynical, sinister and literally homicidal crusade against hydroxychloroquine, a team of operatives played a key role in devising and pushing through the exceptionally high dosing. They made sure the UK government recovery trials on over a thousand elderly patients in British hospitals and the UN solidarity study of 3,500 patients in 400 hospitals in 35 countries, as well as additional sites in 13 countries, all used those unprecedented and dangerous doses. This was a brassy enterprise to prove chloroquine dangerous. And sure enough, it proved that elderly patients can die from deadly overdoses. In each of these two trials, solidarity and recovery, the hydroxychloroquine arm predictably had 10-20% to more deaths than the control arm, the control arm being those patients lucky enough to receive standard supportive care. Moving on, concern over an impending pandemic may cause other changes to arise in a healthcare system. A couple of months ago, I interviewed the British journalist Jackie Devoy regarding her research into the re-implementation of the Liverpool Care Pathway, Britain's banned euthanasia programme, and vastly increased use of the respiratory depressant drug midazolam in the NHS. The full interview is available on this channel, so I'll just play a clip from it here. I mean, the Liverpool Care Pathway was uh, deemed inhumane. Um, it it, it included... Although it wasn't in writing, it including, included the withdrawal of uh, patients' medications that were maybe helping them. It uh, um, nil by mouth was uh, very commonplace, where they wouldn't give uh, the patient any any food or water. And um, usually, and and they'd put them on end of life drugs, which would co combined with the dehydration and eventually the starvation would kill them. Um, and it was deemed inhumane, so it was banned in 2014. But then in, in 2020, uh, with, with, with the dawn of COVID, um, they brought in this protocol back. So anyone that went into hospital who was presenting a bit COVID-y, um, they put them on this pathway, which involved um, initially a 2.5 milligram um, dose of midazolam, which is used to ease agitation, apparently. So if the person's agitated, and then they put them on morphine with that, usually on a syringe drive there, and then within days the person will be dead. Um, because, but they were used. They were saying it was a treatment for COVID, and back in April 2020, there was a massive order put in um, by Matt Hancock who was the health secretary back then, uh, for a two years supply, a two years supply of midazolam um, ordered from a, a factory in France by, via a distributor in, in um, England. So, um, and there's this video, which I've included in, uh, in my film, uh, of Matt Hancock talking to Dr. Luke, Luke Evans about this, about the order of midazolam being brought in 
and how it was going to be used. Now that, that two year supply was used up in nine months um, and it coincides, you know, the administration of it coincides with that initial first wave, the spike of COVID deaths in care homes and hospitals of, of the elderly mainly. So then you start to ask questions. You're like, well, was it actually COVID or was it this medication? Okay, if I played devil's advocate on that for a moment, I could yeah. say there's two ways of looking at that. Okay, either there's a massive spike in the deaths because of COVID and in correlation of that, midazolam is used to help people pass on. Mm -hmm. So, or you could say, well, there's a massive spike in death mm -hmm. and midazolam is a respiratory suppressant drug. So mm -hmm. there is a sort of, inescapable logic to your point that if you can demonstrate vastly more midazolam was used over a certain period and midazolam is a respiratory suppressant which it is i, was, I mean that was kind of shocking to me when i went looking and saw the, the official yeah. documents on it and oh there it is and mm -hmm. covid is a disease that affects the lungs it's a suppressing people's ability to breathe and you use a respiratory depressant yeah. there's a sort of inescapable logic that it's going to raise the death rate i would find it hard to think how to skip out of that one I said I'd come back to the point about it being impossible for national borders to contain a virus. Dr. Denis Rancourt, the other voice from the opening clips, studied this by comparing the movement of COVID to the movement of any other historical virus. He found it to be completely inconsistent, with COVID forming in hotspots based around medical jurisdictions. An area of Dr. Rancourt's extensive research that particularly grabbed my attention regards the reclassification of other diseases as COVID. This had a tangible effect in a demonstrable decrease in the number of antibiotic prescriptions issued in the United States. Let's listen to a clip from Dr. Roncourt's recent interview on the Corbett Report. The, the other thing, you don't hear in the media that about 50 to 60 percent of the things that were called COVID-19 actually were co-infection with pneumonia. You see how there's a lot of green there and uh, in proportion to the red. So th there was an epidemic of uh, co-infecting pneumonia. And guess what? It was not treated. They stopped prescribing antibiotics at the same time in the COVID period. You can look at, we put it in our paper, we've got the prescriptions of antibiotics and it drops by half at the same time that you have a huge epidemic of bacterial pneumonia, which is a known killer, unlike viral respiratory diseases, you stop prescribing antibiotics. So I think you can guess what I'm gonna say the mechanism of those deaths is, right? It's the, These are pneumonia deaths. And also the, the amount of pneumonia that they're uh, counting here, um, they're not all from tests of uh, taking a swab and seeing if there's actual bacteria in, in, in the tissues. No, Th this is based on symptoms. This is based on uh, clinical examinations or guesswork and so on. So I think a lot of what was called COVID, they didn't bother to say that it looks like there might be a co-infection of bacteria there as well, you see. Uh, but but um, despite that, you have 60% of the so-called COVID that are bacterial cases as well. And bacterial pneumonia is a much bigger killer than in all age groups than is uh, COVID, uh, than is a viral respiratory disease. I've presented three examples of things that change on the announcement of a virus that in and of themselves affect the death rate. There are plenty of others. 
the forced movement of elderly people out of hospitals and into care homes in order to free up beds. This is supposed to have been a massive contributing factor to mortality rates during the first wave. There's the deployment of new and dangerous antivirals, such as remdesivir, which Robert Kennedy Jr. contends was a part of the reason the United States led the way in COVID fatalities. His book also documents the suppression of viable COVID treatments. And of course there are the lockdowns, which globally must be the biggest killers of all. How many people died of COVID who wouldn't have done had they not been severely malnourished due to lockdowns? In this episode, I've quoted from doctors who contend that there is no pandemic, and the increased mortality is entirely due to states effectively murdering their citizens. I've also quoted doctors who hold that a dangerous pandemic is going on, but concur that states' actions have substantially increased the death rate. I don't feel I'm in a position to come down on one side or the other of that line. I'm going to leave it as an open question, one I think we should all be asking. To what extent have we lived through a pandemic, and to what extent have we actually witnessed a democide, mass killing enacted by the state? Thank you for listening. Do let me know if you think I'm mistaken on any of these points, and I'll pick up on some different COVID-democide-related themes in the future.